Welcome again to another podcast, Look Again. We got the boys in the room. Say what's up. What's good, y'all? How y'all doing? Hey, what's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in again. Yeah, we appreciate y'all listening again. So we just wanted to introduce our guest. We have Dwight Watkins, also known as D. Watkins. He is an author, an educator, and also a teacher. And he's also a friend of Otman. And it's just kind of nice to have some conversations with him today. And we just want to welcome you to the podcast. So welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. No problem. Yeah, yeah thanks man. for taking thanks. the time. Yeah, thanks, bro, for taking the time out for us. So just to start off, I'd love to hear how you you and Otman just know each other, how you guys, you know, started a relationship and how you guys have met throughout the years. That's funny. I don't know. Otman probably, he don't remember this, but I met him when he was playing basketball at Dunbar and he was in a, he was in a 12th grade. I was in the ninth grade and we had this health class, this lady named Miss Heck. I, I don't really, you know, Dunbar's it's an interesting school. It's it's a wild, it was a wild place because, you know, I feel like um all of the bones were there for Dunbar to be a great high school, but they just they didn't have the resources needed to fully engage people like us. So, you know, in turn, um, yeah, I mean, we got our work done, but we played around a lot. But I had a class with him, and he, he was a funny guy. He sat in the back and made jokes. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, D always being, you know, a, a very uh, funny dude, always telling jokes, cracking jokes, just like he said about me. And it was always a pleasure uh, seeing him in school. And, you know, at our school, it was a lot of pride for, like, Poet Pride on 3, for real, for real. And um, it was definitely a beautiful place to be. And I totally agree with D that if it was more infrastructure set up, uh, it would be a lot more successful folks coming out of there. But, you know, I, I think we still are doing our thing as far as a community from Dunbar. Yeah, we definitely, I definitely think um, we're making a whole lot of our fellow Dunbar poets proud. But, you know, like, and, and we push to, to, to do what we can do to try to try to make things better. I think, um, you know, the school just got a new principal and, you know, the last principal ran into, you know, a situation where, um, she had some issues fully understanding the community of the kids she serviced. And, um, but, you know, I think with the new principal, some of the things I've been hearing, I haven't made it down there yet. I, I've been going, I've been back to Dunbar like six times since I graduated, giving away books and teaching workshops and things like that. And I think I'm waiting, I'm excited to meet the new principal so I can, I can continue that. Nice. So I guess our first question is, is like, what was your experience growing up in Baltimore? What are some things that you remember growing up as a kid, having the community in your neighborhood and the schools you grew up in? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I think that, I think a lot of times Baltimore gets a bad rap. And, you know, because when you ask somebody about being from this city, one of the things is that our resiliency has always been a form of currency. So people immediately cling to like, you know, oh, I've been through this and I've been through that. And I survived the crack era. And I survived this trauma, that trauma, that trauma. Um, and it's a real thing, you know. It's it's a bravado and, and a masculinity that that we we cling to because we needed to survive in a certain way. But for, for my story, I would say um, those elements are definitely in place. But it was, you know, I have a great family and some amazing friends, and I've I've had some some great experiences. I've saw some negative things, like a lot of people. Um, I lost my brother at a young age. Um, I lost some of my close friends at a young age. But um, I was. You know, I was able to still take all of that pain and figure out a way to create a meaningful experience. Luckily, yeah, so um, I, I was born and raised in, in East Baltimore. 
my older brother who I mentioned earlier was was always a hero and um, just a person who I looked up to a lot. He was a street guy and he always told me that I shouldn't be a street guy. He, you know, he felt like I should go to school and I wanted to be like him because he was a street guy. So he's telling me to stay away from the streets, but everything he was doing in and out of the housing projects and then up and down Ashland Avenue and all of these people um, who were from the neighborhood had a whole lot of love and admiration for him. And I wanted that too. And my, some of my friends started selling drugs. And then I started to see how messed up their reality was guys who are 15 years old and 16 years old who are working like 60, 70 hours a week and their childhoods was gone. And I didn't want that. And he told me to focus on school and he started, you know, doing really well. And I focused on school and I did everything he told me to do. And I eventually was lucky enough to get into some colleges. And before he knew the amount of schools that I got into, um, you, know, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade year high school, I played around. But by the time I became a junior, I, I became focused and the people who was around me, they were focused and we leaned on each other and we did what we had to do. And we paid for the SAT preps and we did all of that stuff. And we all got into a, a couple of colleges. And around that time, um, when I was getting into school was around the time he was murdered. And that just sent me on on a spiral of, of, of darkness. And I you know, I, I stayed away and I didn't really go out as much. And I, I was, I was in a broken place. And one of my, one of my real good friends had just encouraged me and said, look, you know, you don't really need to just lay around all day and waste your life away. You should try. So coming from Baltimore, Baltimore is an extremely black city. Like I, you know, Dunbar high schools are black and, you know, East Baltimore and the neighborhoods I grew up in was all black. The only white people that you really meet are like teachers and housing police or whatever. Like you don't really have white peers. So um, I went to the school called Loyola, which is like the whitest place I've ever been in my life. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and it was like, I could call it culture shock because um, like I said, I never really had white peers. So like I would be around people on campus and they would talk about bands and, you know, and, you know, it's like stuff like, you know, when you when you when you coming up in East Baltimore, like you never really hear stuff like, I don't know, Kings and Leon and, and like and John Mayer and what that stuff is like. You don't really hear about that stuff. So people are talking about movies and bands and different things that they're into. And um, it was different for me and me just being on campus. And I didn't really understand how to build relationships and how to network and how to um, be that guy to actually take advantage of college the way I should be taking advantage of it. So, um, you know, I, I hung around for a little bit. One of my friends named, named Nick, his name's Gary, and my book from the neighborhood, he came he came up to Loyola with me to hang out, and he dropped out of school in the eighth grade. But I was like, I was telling him, I was like, yo, you don't do anything all day. Won't you just come on campus with me? I'm really just trying to see if I'm crazy or something wrong with these people. And he came to school with me, and he hung out for a couple of days, and he said, nah, you're not crazy. Something's wrong with them. <laughs> I was gonna say that because he's from he's from around my way, so I ended up dropping out of school and hanging around the neighborhood. And then I, I got into the streets like my dad and like my older brother before me, and I, I did that for a while until I learned all of the lies that they hit for me, or all of the lies that my friends thought being in the street was. I had some pretty rough lessons, and lucky enough, I found my way back to school and put myself on a path to redemption. That's powerful, man. You know, just going back a little, I think it's really impressive how you were saying how when you were first getting in to high school, how, you know, you, you seen your brother doing his thing 
and you wanted to do that. And I'm sure your neighborhood kind of like made you want to do that too. your peers, everyone that's around you. Cause I know a lot of the young kids we work with, that's, you know, that kind of lifestyle is kind of glorified, you know what I mean? And it's impressive to hear that you, that your brother's like, nah, don't do that. You should be, you know, go do school, go do that. And would you say that it was solely your brother's influence that kind of started putting you on that right path early on in life? I mean, it just seems amazing that you had the perseverance and the fortitude to be like, all right, big bro, I love you. I respect you. And you tell me not to do this. So I'm going to go hit these books and I'm going to go take the SAT prep and all that type of stuff. I, I just find that really amazing that you were able to, at that age, make that decision when, you know, I'm sure you're surrounded by all these people that are pushing this lifestyle on you and you got big bro who you look up to living that lifestyle. I just, I find that just like, it's, it's blowing my mind that you made that choice and, and, and tried to walk the straight path initially. Yeah. So I, I'm definitely not a prophet. <laughs> Number one, he, he was paying the bills. You know, um, I had been living with him. Number two, when he told me I, I wasn't supposed to be in the streets, he was he was right. A lot of things that he was doing when he was 13 and 14 years old, I still wasn't doing yet. Some of the stuff that he was into, you know, we have different moms and you know his mom his mom had um, overdosed and died when he was coming up. But some of the stuff, you know, he was he was a man coming out the gate. He had to be a man early, and I kind of had some people around me protecting me from from certain things. You know, I, I listened to him. Um, one thing I will say, you know, and I, I love him. Rest in peace. I love him dearly. But I, I think um, I think that he had a he had an idea of what of what I should have been doing with myself, even though he was really young, too. But at the same time, he didn't really know how to put it in context. Like and a whole lot of young people struggle with that today. So I can if I'm walking into your school saying, yo, I'm a writer. My name's D. Watkins. Read my books. It's not the same thing as me telling you, yo, if you don't read, you're going to starve and be homeless and you'll never learn how to think critically and you'll never learn how to make good decisions. And people will be able to dictate your future for you and lie about you, lie to you about your past and give you all of their ideas. And you won't be able to challenge them because you can't think critically. You know what I'm saying? Like it's an urgency you can put behind some of these things that we try to pass the young people or some of these things we're trying to do when we actually have done that type of work ourselves. I think I looked up to him, so you know I, that made me listen to him. Different people in the neighborhood was protecting me from certain things, so that was something. And then again, um, it was a combination of it all. It was definitely more than just me. It was a combination of seeing my friends actually standing outside all day long on the block three or four days, smelling like trash, really like <laughs> living a glorious drug dealer life which wasn't that glorious they put all that work in and you know by the end of the week they got enough money to pay whoever they supposed to pay and buy a pair of nikes and you know maybe a couple of little go to mo's and they done yeah. <laughs> you know what i'm saying that's like, so real you know it's not as glamorous as you know it's just rappers used to make it look cool <laughs> but the reality of it wasn't really that cool and um so i think the combination of all of those things made me focus on school at a at an early age. Um, I think where I where I fumbled the ball at, or where I failed was, I didn't understand why I was focusing on school. And when I got to college, I didn't understand what college was and why I was there. And then the people who was going to college wasn't really, you know, these kids now, like there's so many mentors and so many uh, big brother programs and so many people going into schools. There's like a huge influx of people that are pouring love into our kids now. And I, the kids who take advantage of it, I'm inspired 
by them. The ones who don't, I just want to pull them aside and say, yo, you know, when I was coming up, nobody came anywhere near us ever. Like, we never had, you know, we never had so much exposure to what is it like going to jail? What is it like being in college? What is it, what is it like starting a company? What is it like exploring, you know, mindfulness, different types of education, different types of spirituality, different types of, like, it's nothing but what's in front of you, and you, you're in that little box, and that's what it is. So, um, you know, I think it was a combination of them things, and I think um, I, I keep that in mind when I'm talking to young people because I know I'm not the one. I may not be the guy that can help you directly pull you off the corner with money and opportunity, but I can help you get the resources that could get you away from that. And I can also give you some insight on some of the bad things that are guaranteed to happen to you if you live that lifestyle. And I can give you some insight on the things you can do to stay away from that and and try to do something positive with your life. So like you said, uh, when we were coming up, it really wasn't too many positive role models in the hood. It might have been like, you know, coaches of athletic teams and stuff like that at the most. What is it that you think has made that shift? Because I've seen that a lot, too, in the past, maybe like five to seven years, a lot of grassroots movements of even just black men are actually going out there trying to be those positive influences that we didn't have. What what do you think is causing that right now? You know, a lot of us, growing up in the crack era, you know, a lot of us, like my father got high. Both of my best friends, they followed. One of my best friends, his dad, we, we never met. But my other best friend, his father got high. I'm having my first child will be born next month. Congratulations. Thank you. you. My homie has three kids and my friend that's locked up, he has a couple of children. And we all we all chip in and we take care of his kids while he's gone. And my homie's like one of the best fathers I ever, you know, you wouldn't even you wouldn't even know that his dad wasn't around like that. Like you wouldn't even you wouldn't even think about it. And I think I think that's what it is. We're growing up and we're watching our fathers run down the street stealing video games and (laughs) fucking windowsills. And and it's it's embarrassing and it's like a joke and you get you you become angry and, and you get frustrated and you know we see that and we're like nah hold up like I'm I'm gonna do it different like I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do and I'm I'm gonna make sure that I'm the type of father that a child deserves so I, I think it's that and I think it transfers over to everything else you know not really getting what you want out of school so we go in schools and we do things not really getting what we think we deserve. In the communities, so we're in these communities. If we live in them or if we don't live in them, we're giving back and and we're trying to create things that didn't exist before we got here. We're trying to create things that we didn't have. That's real. So, D, what got you into writing? Like, what like what was your inspiration behind that? Because like a lot of people, I feel like particularly a lot of people from from Baltimore City, like like writing's not an outlet for you. You know what I mean? Like, if you're writing, it's more something around like. Like I know a lot of a lot of people that write lyrics if they're if they're performers, like if they're rappers, but like writing a book isn't something you usually hear from people from Baltimore City. So what got you inspired to do that? I, I wasn't one of them people who grew up with a little journal and was walking around saying that I was gonna be a writer my whole entire life. That just wasn't my story. Um I was actually in the hospital and it was a nurse and she was uh she was walking around my room with a, and her head was just deep in this book. And I've never saw a person connect with a book like, like that in my life. When I was coming up, we only got given, you know, we only were able to read stories 
that was, you know, about white people, or if it was a black person in the book, then they performed some subservient role. So it was just something that a lot of us didn't connect with. If you're coming out of East Baltimore and, and, and you're seeing all of these wild and crazy things or all of these interesting things, and the only book that connects to your experience, the only book that they're giving you is something like Huckleberry Finn and, you know, Tom Sawyer or a Scarlet Letter or something like you're not, it's intimidating and it's just, it's not interesting. And it's, um, it's difficult to be able to love reading at that age, given those books at that age. So um, I, I didn't read and I was proud of it. And like I said, this nurse was, she had her head deep in the book and, and she was lost and she was doing her job, but she was lost. And I asked her, I said, yo, what, what are you reading? Like, I've never seen a person like locked in on a book like that. And she's like, oh, you would like this book. And I said, why you say that? And she said, it's about you and your friends. And I said, me and my friends. She said, yeah, thugs. This book is about thugs. I was like, I ain't no thug. And she said, well, how come everybody who comes into this room to see you smell like a bunch of weed? <laughs> and I'm like, because they all got cataracts. <laughs> and me and her, I was in the hospital for like a week. We would joke like that, right? But one day um, I fell asleep and I woke up and she left a book right next to my bed. And I woke up and I read it. And the book was called The Coldest One Ever. And... I did not know you could write a book like that. It was a book about a drug family. And um, it was interesting and it was relatable and it was funny and it was a page turner. And I finished it in a couple of days. And then after that, I'm looking up Sister Soldier and I'm like, yo, I want more. So I've read other books by her. And then I started reading the people who um, her influences. And these were people like James Baldwin and Langston Hughes and Toni Morrison. And I've read Sula and I read The Bluest Eyes. And then... I started reading other contemporary people who were writing similar things that had, who was writing in a similar genre, but brought their own twist on it. So I started reading like Richard Price and I read Clockers. And then I found out that he used to read the Beat Poets. So I read the Beat Poets. I read Naked Lunch and I read On the Road. And then I found out they was influenced by Dostoevsky. So I've read The Idiot. And before you know it, like I'm, I'm a reader now. Now I'm a person that is, you know, I've, exercising my brain and I'm learning literature and I'm learning about all of these different experiences and suddenly my neighborhood that used to be the biggest thing in the world to me just was so small <laughs> and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to see more things and connect with more things and and, and just do more and in that process I started reading a lot of articles too and I was reading a lot of um, stories that the Baltimore Sun put out and I would get into the writers and I would get into their voices and I would be able to know who's a liar and who's telling the truth. I would hear how they would quote people in a story and I'd be like, yo, he don't talk like that. That neighborhood don't talk like that. People don't sound like that. This couldn't have happened. Like this person, this reporter is not a reporter because they didn't even get out their car. Like they're not doing their job. And that kind of challenged me to, you know, because in reading something I learned was the best form of criticism or critique is creation. So don't sit around and cry about it. You make, carve your own lane out. And I started writing from there and I started developing my voice and, and trying to get into it from there. And it was it was good because this, this was around the time I went back to school and even going back to college, I wasn't a reader. I, I apologize if, you know to the kids who are listening to this, but you can totally graduate from college without, you know, with like not doing that by being a skimmer. <laughs> mm -hmm. you won't you won't get what you're supposed to get you'll be cheating yourself but you can do it and i was doing it i was a skimmer and i was i was getting through but i became a reader and um i went and got a um 
an MFA, and um, you know, I, I got really serious. So that's that's kind of how I got into it. I mean, I feel you on the not reading thing. I mean, I don't think I read a lot of books till after college. You know what I mean? Like the I remember like fighting my way through Great Expectations and books like that throughout high school and in college. And then finally, after I graduated, I found books that spoke to me, read those. So like if there was a young person listening or like young D, I mean, like what what are two books you could recommend to some young people that like might spark that fire in them? Like young people, say from East Baltimore, from West Baltimore, like what, what are two books you think you could throw at them that might get them sparked to, to for that hunger to read? Uh, if they from East Baltimore, they should definitely read The Cook Up by Me. They should read Black Seeds. By- <laughs> sure, I mean, straight up. They should. It should be mandatory. I mean, and a lot of stu- a lot of kids are, so many kids are telling me that's the only book they ever read. Well, that's the book that gave them confidence to pick up their second book. So definitely The Cook Up by Me. Definitely uh, Black Seeds by Tarek Torre. Definitely Hummingbirds in the Trenches by Kondwani Fidel. Hands down. Um, I think that. You know, you got a, a memoir, then you have a a, a a poetry book by a dude from West Baltimore. Then you got a hybrid of um, memoir and poetry by a dude from East Baltimore. And all three of us got different vibes, different voices, different ways we see the world. And the kids love each and every one of them books. They eat them up. So, like, I would definitely I would definitely start with those. If once you finish those and you want to get really more into um following somebody who has like a a non-traditional journey but just not like ours then read Sheree's book of nine years under a young girl from East Baltimore working in a funeral home through high school so imagine what her reality was like um it's an excellent memoir and you know I think once you got through those books you'll be able to just start your own little reading list and you'll 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 be recommending books to me yeah thanks for Mm -hmm. the recommendations bro man yeah yeah, when and when you started, you know, getting started, like so, you're reading all these books. It's opening your mind up, like you said. You, you, your scope is increasing. You, you're seeing that it's not just your city. You know, it's it's about the world that you want to experience. And you started writing. Was it something just natural for you? You know what I mean? Or did you have to like work and work, like you said, until I found my voice? You know, or you know, so like, was it something that just came like you just you're like you started like man i'm just really good at this or would it take a lot of a lot of work for you to get to where you're at today it, it took a lot of work and i'm kind of i'm still finding my voice because different projects pull different things out of you you know i think that i wasn't a reader and i wasn't a writer that came to me later but at the same time i was in love with storytelling my whole life so being able to form a story was easy to me because i remember being young and being afraid to fall asleep because i was I was scared that I was going to miss something because I felt like my neighborhood has some of the best storytellers in the world. So, um, you know, I think that part, that part was easy. Now, translating that story from delivering that message orally to me, putting it on a page took a whole lot of work. But, you know, once I figured out how to tell my story, then it became easy. Okay, so now I'm writing all these different articles for Salon. And I got to translate these stories or I got to translate stories from some people who I don't even get to meet <laughs> to a whole bunch of people who I'm never going to meet. And then I develop a different type of language. Right now, I'm working with Carmelo Anthony, writing his book for him, um, with him. And like now I got to take his story, his voice, and I got to figure out what that looks like on the page as the most authentic representation of him. So I think it's like, it's something that's just like a, it's, it's an ongoing process that, uh, that constantly evolves. And you, it's like going to school for computers. Like you never stop going to school. Like you always working. That's awesome. So I hear you talking about like how you fell in love with reading and how you fell in love with writing. And 
as you were doing that, you were not contained to your neighborhood. You were contained to your mind, which has a more expansive viewpoint. And I'm curious, like, how did your view of the neighborhood change as your mind was changing as well? That's a great question. I had these different phases. So it's like I went from being a person who um, I always understood that if you're a black person and you're from certain areas, you're not going to be treated the way you're supposed to be treated. Then I went through the phase of learning all of these different things and looking at the neighborhood and, and questioning things that we could be doing better. What are we getting wrong? What are we not getting? What are we not understanding? And then I send it to like a different level of thought and understanding how <laughs> there's no such thing as like uplift suasion. Like you can't earn your way out of some of these situations. You can't, there's no savior. There's no, for every one person who figures out a way to carve out some type of reality through these situations, there's another 15 people who got eaten up by like one of the 10 systems constructed to destroy them. And I started to understand that. No, I, I was, you know, I was never the type of person to like victim blame or like to blame people for their own trauma or their own poverty or their own pain. I, you know, I think I just got to a place where I, where I just, you know, pretty much understand the role that the city plays in maintaining the status quo. Social reproduction in Baltimore and what that social reproduction looks like and how people in power in Baltimore play a role in making sure a certain amount of people don't have a good experience here because it's how they cash checks. Yeah. So as you were like growing up and reading and writing, because you, you also said that you had some of the best storytellers in Baltimore, like in your neighborhood, and you didn't want to go to sleep. Did those stories become more alive as you learned and started falling in love with the craft of reading and writing? The most important thing for me was, you know, I was able to to live up some of those stories and use those stories as a part of like the combination of coping mechanisms that I've had. But I think the most important thing that happened in the whole process was I realized that those stories just weren't they just weren't good to me. They were good to people outside of my neighborhood. Some of the stuff that happened to me and some of the things that happened to some of my friends coming up and that I, that I personally think are hilarious. They hold weight in other communities. Um, people who don't have experiences the same as mine <laughs> hear me talk about these things and they bust out and laugh as hard as, as hard as I did. And that, that made the world smaller for me. Awesome. Thank you. D, like I said earlier, man, like uh, we really didn't have too many role models. Like we had the um, coaches, we had like Bucky Lee and Sarge and, uh, my dad and, you know, Smitty and Pete Pompey and a lot of other people like that. But, you know, now that you're a grown man, how does it feel to be that person who is enhancing, inspiring the next generation of kids, speaking from your truth? I'm just happy that I get the help, you know, because like everybody you just named, these are all people that have been transformative to so many people in the city. But it's like, for the most part, you got to know how to hoop. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, if you can't, you know, if you can't hit an in and out crossover, step back, pull up, whatever, then you're not going to meet a lot of those people. You're not going to really have an experience that really even like get the guidance from them that they gave to so many other um, young people in the city. So, I, I mean, I think I'm blessed. Like, I'm lucky. I'm lucky enough to be able to go in schools and I'm lucky enough for students 
confidence to be able to receive me and what I do and for them to be able to think about their own life and putting their own stories down. And maybe they want to be a writer one day. Maybe they want to be a journalist. Maybe they want to work in television. I've done all of these things and I can tell them like, yo, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Like it's a difference going into a, a bunch of people and telling them they can do something that you've never done. Isn't the same as coming in with a resume where you accomplish those things and they're Googleable, and you can find them and you can talk about them and you can put other people on the path to do the same thing. And I'm, I'm lucky I get to be that person. And um, one of the things that I do outside of the writing and the speaking and all of that stuff is trying to make sure other people are doing the same thing. Like, yo, we have to be the change that we want to see. We have to be the people we need growing up. If we don't, then we're wasting time and we're not doing what the ancestors did for us. You know, we, we, we're guilty and we'll have to pay for that other than your brother because you said you were inspired by your brother was there anybody else you were inspired by while growing up yeah my, my grandmother was um always one of my heroes i looked up to her a lot mainly because um she was just a person who she believed in justice and not in a traditional sense but she just she believed in fairness in a way that was like almost it's almost crazy like I don't know. You ever heard this term, the holy fool, a person who does what's right just because it's right, even if like they could get, you know, a million dollars for doing the wrong. OK, you know who would be a holy fool? And this is not my grandma. My grandma was way better than her. But an example would be like Florida Evans from the uh, Good Times. Florida Evans is a holy fool. Like they in the projects. James Evans working at a gas station, pumping gas. He's making two dollars a day. And JJ finds $10,000 and he comes in the house with $10,000 in cash. And he's like, look, I found $10,000. And she's like, JJ, that's not right. You got to give it to the police because they need it to fight crime. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's not my grandmother, but I'm saying that she had that her morals. She had those types of morals where like you wasn't going to rip her off. You wasn't going to get over on her. She believed in the idea of you got to lift as you climb. She believed in um, her thing was it's never right to do wrong and never wrong to do right. Never look down on a person unless you're pulling them up. And she lived by it. And you also wasn't going to get over. You wasn't going to rip her off, not for a penny, not for nothing. Like she was going to get when she was old. And I always thought that was funny how she would um, even her, how she would tell her stories and how she would fight her battles. And that was like one of my one of my big role models. I was too one like when um before we left the projects and moved down the hill when I needed like a break from all of that stuff like I used to spend a lot of time and she lived she used to live over um on Montpelier Street over um 21218 she's from Blackstone Virginia a really really small town and she started out with nothing she didn't have anything and she came to Baltimore and she scrubbed floors and she bought a house that was inspiring to me awesome so I got a question for you so like I mean, you talked earlier about your experience at Loyola and like the culture shock of being there and like the people being weird to you. Like it's it's a bit it's like a polar opposite now that you're you're an educator at Johns Hopkins now. You know what I mean? So now like you're educating those kids that you couldn't relate to earlier. So I mean it's taking a lot of growth and a lot of shift. So I mean, how is it being an educator there? So I'm on staff at University of Baltimore. The class I teach at Hopkins is a class that I teach once a year. It's called Context of the Urban Child. And these are like people who are working towards even their master's or their PhD. So it's like I'm not working with like undergraduate students in Hopkins who don't really understand Baltimore culture. I'm working with people who've studied it 
extensively and who are even trying to create studies or going to the classroom and or going to a classroom in some urban area and create some type of change. You know, as far as my teacher career, I started teaching at Joined Douglas College, which was right across the street from Dunbar. Then I started teaching at um, Coppin State University. Then I got the job at UB, and then um, I had taught like um, two resi- low residency courses at Goucher, but I was on staff at UB, so I'm locked in there. And then Hopkins, I was doing that once a year for the last couple of years. And I think the experience you're talking about, I think, is definitely for like those undergraduate students who walk up and down Charles Street all day with the, the hoodies and the, the uh, Adidas slippers, the Zuckerberg look. And I don't really interact with them. Like the people who I interact with is, um, you know, the education building is it's on campus, but it's not on campus. So the education building is on 28th Street, 28th and Charles, whereas like you got to go up like a half a mile to a mile to get to the main campus with all of those different buildings there. So I don't even really see them like that. But, you know, um, I do meet I do meet a lot of different students as a writer. And I think that one of the things that always is shocking to them is how much we have in common because we're always taught that we're so different. We're so different. We're so different, but in actuality, like we all kind of want the same things, you know, we want to make our families proud and we want to experience love. And, you know, when we're at a restaurant, we want the appetizer to come out quick. You know what I'm saying? Like we, you know, we kind of all want the same thing. So I, I think they learn that or they see that, as we build and have these conversations. And I think that's helpful too. And that skill has definitely helped me in the classroom. I got a uh, off the subject question. I'm being from Baltimore, being from East Baltimore. I mean, I guess anywhere in Baltimore, basketball is a big thing and a big part of culture. Maybe not who's the best, but who is your favorite high school basketball player of all time? My favorite high school basketball player of all time. is probably this dude named Timothy Lyles. Probably this dude <laughs> named Fest. And a reason why I'm a, I say it is because, like, his effort, like, he didn't put a lot of effort and like, his mentality, and, you know, he didn't win, you know, all the, you know, he didn't go to the NBA, and, you know, his college career was kind of, he didn't really have, like, a full college career, but his mentality was always fascinating, fascinating to me because I knew so many people around him and who wanted what he had, and he didn't put that type of energy into it. It was just, it was the strangest thing in the world to be like, I'd be, yo, you see the game last night? You see what happened with, you know, Jordan did this and this and that. And he's asking me about stuff that my cousin's doing. Like, yo, where Leon at? What they, you know, and I'm like, yo, why you care what they do? Like, you can't go to college. Like, you can't, you know, and it was, it was, you know, I, I don't know if it was like a fear of success phobia that he had or if he was just so drenched in the mentality that this city could easily create that he never really got a chance to to understand where he could be in the world. But he was he was probably like one of one of my favorite basketball players, straight up. Yeah. I know what you mean where it seemed like he really didn't put too much effort into it because he worked hard, but I was around a lot of people who put in like hours and hours uh in the gym, yet he was still doing it effortlessly, like you said. I mean people put hours in the gym. Yeah. Hours. Yeah, and like you said, he put hours out there in other places. You know what I mean? And that's why he was probably you know, infatuated with your peoples. But one thing I know is that he had one mean shooting guard on his team that could bang it from anywhere and, and shut everybody down on defense. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just Wait saying. A minute. I don't think that dude gets enough uh, uh, enough props and be It's like, no, nah, I'm just joking. You're giving yourself props right now. Another thing, too, I think, I think um, 
you know, you know, Fess is older. Fess is a little older than what you know. I think Fess might be your age, Ackman. Yeah, he about uh, my age. Yeah, uh, so he had the luxury of being in the ninth grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you was when you was at Maryland, so, like, <laughs> so you know the the school system kind of helped him out a little bit as far as like, you know, so maybe that maybe that could could have been something too. But I think I think when I met him up Hamilton, it is a you but it used to be a city neighbors now, but it used to be a middle school called Hamilton, and one one day I was going to Hampstead. But we had went to go play basketball with some other guys. I think Larry Tucker was there. But we went to play basketball with some other guys in the back of Hamilton. And it was these grown men out there ready to fight because this kid was, like, destroying them. And I thought that he was a high school kid. And he probably, now that I'm looking back, he probably should have been in high school. But he was this middle school kid. So I thought that was like a... um, You know, I I just... You know, I thought that was fascinating at that that particular time. But... um, you know, the other people who a lot of people look up to. Like, I, you know, I, I've never got a chance to, you know, see, like, Skip Wise footage, but I always hear about how great Skip Wise was and how people get excited. Skip Wise might can, can challenge Ackman and Poolbad to a three-point shooting contest because he can <laughs> he, he can hit it from anywhere, too. So, you know. Yeah, even to this day, he, he can still hit it. <laughs> oh, for real? Yeah, yeah he uh, actually... One of the first places that we had our after-school program was at the Druid Hill YMCA, and he had some job down there, and he was, like, really hitting it from, like, half court. But, you know, the Druid Hill Y gym isn't really, uh, you know, regulation. But, you know, he still had that pretty stroke, man. Is he still up there? We we haven't been up there maybe in the past, what, like, 10 years. But, you know, 10 years ago, he was still firing it from half court. I, seen, I, I saw him. Down Dunbar when they was doing the interviews for that when they was making that thirty for thirty and uh, you know he he, he like it's, it, he looked like his age caught up with him so I was wondering how long ago that was yeah nice so I'm actually kind of curious so it sounds like you're doing so much with writing with teaching with just even even mentoring I'm curious what's next for you do you have anything lined up that you're excited about anything that you would like to share. Yeah, like I mentioned, I'm writing a, um, I'm working on a Carmelo book. Uh, we just we just finished a proposal, so our agents are going out next week to publishing companies, so we can get a deal and really get into it. And I think um, people are going to be excited about the stories that he wants to tell. Like a lot of people think they know a lot of things about Melo, but it's like you know we we're gonna unpack some things that are deep. And um, I gotta um. I was working on an HBO documentary about police about police corruption based around this cop that I investigated and um, that me and some other reporters had put some articles out that led to this cop actually going to prison. So I'm excited about that documentary coming out in 2021. And then um, I had got a I got a job working with David Simon on creating a brand new television show, a mini series for HBO, and we're just waiting for the series to get greenlit. And then once it gets greenlit, I'll be locked away in the writing's room with those guys for a couple of months, banging out a script and being able to like write my first, my, a whole episode to myself. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about that. So I'm just, um, I'm looking forward to the projects that I'm working on. I'm also, I'm writing another book and we're in the process. I'm in the process of finishing that proposal. And that would be like a 2021 thing too, but it's, you know, it's all good. Anybody really, really looking forward to, in- to interviewing it? You know, it's crazy because it's like I never know who I'm going to interview. Um, my producer, she just hits me up. 
with like a list of people and she'll send me like five people and I'll always I'll pick like two or three and you just you never know like it's, it's always a surprise one day it could be a politician like Ilhan Omar and or AOC and another day I'll you know she'll send me the list and it'll be like Cuba getting junior <laughs> 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 that, and that that really happened like so you know so like I you never yeah, it, it did like this dude's crazy but <laughs> I'm I'm always interested in hearing people talk about their passion and their art and their creative process and how they see the world and then how that changes once they've experienced certain levels of success. So it's um it's always like a, they're good conversations. Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, man, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know, I mean, I'm sure all our listeners can see how busy you are with all these projects and and for doing all the work you do and inspiring all the youth and just everybody in the world and representing Baltimore, man. We really do appreciate all the work that you're doing. Uh, you, you, I thank you guys for the work you do. Hopefully, we can collab on something. For sure, for sure. So, um, we ask all of um, all of our guests the same questions, the same one we ask at the end. So, we're just gonna ask you the same one we do. Basically, how would you define love? I would define love as um, the absence of fear. You know, I think that to fully experience love, you have to go into places where people most won't go. And that definition shifts for everybody. Like we all have things that we'll do and we won't do, but love is, is figuring out what you won't do and then doing it, <laughs> you know? That's fine. Awesome. So we just appreciate diving deeper into what you're doing, what you've been up to. It's such a pleasure meeting you. And we just kind of wish you all the best in the future and Hopefully there is a collab in the future for us. Yeah. And, and anything we can do to support you, man, you just let us know for real. And for real, man, I'm very proud of you, man. Like, honestly, still pro pod on three. But for real, where you have come from and where you are, just I'm very proud of you. And, you know, I see nothing but success in your future. Uh, proud of you guys, too. And I thank you guys for everything. Let's definitely let's get together soon. Uh, I don't know what y'all got going on this week, but I, I'll be around. Word. Cool. Uh, you be safe, man. Thank you for everything. Peace. I have a blessed one. All right, peace, man. Peace and right, love, peace. bro. All right, one. Thank you for listening to Look Again Podcast. Please feel free to share this content with your friends and community. Also, please consider donating to our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com and search for Look Again Podcast. Anything helps, and we really appreciate your visit. Thank you so much. 